Hello and welcome to the first episode of Simplified Minds. I'm Stephen Graskowski. This being the first episode and all, I would like to take the time to explain the purpose of this podcast and how I'll be structuring it to deliver information. I think that there is a large amount of complex ideas and scenarios which is affecting all of us as individuals, directly or indirectly. So I think that it is incredibly important to dismantle and explain them in a way in which everyone can understand and benefit from it. Today's discussion will revolve around the share market and how it affects our everyday life, what the government is doing to fix the market, then followed by some potential solutions to fix the market. To help us understand these questions, I decided to ask a very close friend of mine, George Boris. He has extensive knowledge in how the share market works, what affects it, and what can be done to fix it. So without further introduction, I hope you all enjoy our conversation, and I urge you all to listen to the entire episode as you'll be intellectually rewarded. George, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so just before we begin, George, uh, would you mind explaining your job to us and what has recently happened for you to be back in Australia? So I'm working at the moment in the, for an options trading company, and I'm actually not technically trading options right now. I uh, was over in the United States for training for how to do this and learn some of the company tools and such things. Um, and I was in New York from July last year until February, and then I was moved down to the headquarters of my company in Philadelphia, and then halfway through March, when the coronavirus pandemic sort of started to spread, it, it was impressed upon me that I needed to come back to Australia because I was a citizen of Australia, <laughs> and also had much more faith in the handling of the Australian government of the whole thing than the US government, so I came back, and now I'm working from home. Fantastic. So we'll get right into it. What is the purpose of shares and why does it matter? Good question. So like what a share is essentially is just a part of the company. And by saying a part of the company, each person who owns a share has the right to the benefits and also the negatives um, that arise from a company. So the most obvious benefit from a company is if the company makes a whole bunch of money, they can give it out to their shareholders. So this can be done either in getting dividends. So for instance, a lot of Australian banks and miners or whatever, they'll make a whole bunch of money in the year and they'll distribute it to their shareholders in terms of dividends. The other way that you can benefit um, as a shareholder of a company is a lot of companies, especially in America, but also around the whole world, is they buy back their shares from their shareholders. And I'll probably talk a bit more about that. But essentially, the company pays you um, and you sell your share to the company at some price that is agreed upon. Furthermore, as a shareholder, you have the right to vote. So you can vote on who runs your company. And technically or theoretically, you're also meant to have some sort of a say in how your company is being run in this process because you vote at meetings to pick who runs it and other such things like this. Your company can also do things like issue other rights or other benefits to you as a shareholder that you have a right to receive because you own bits of the company. So theoretically, if I was to purchase a share, I would purchase it at a, a price that the company would issue it as or that the market value is currently offering. And then yeah. when I had that share, I would receive a percentage of essentially profits from the company as a, a reward for holding the share. Is that right? In some sense, like, so the first way is like 99% of the time, the way you 
get a share or buy a share is you buy it from someone else who's not the company on the share market. So essentially the share market is just like a, a market. So buyers and sellers can interact with each other and the person who buys the shares gets it off the person selling it. Sometimes companies can directly go to their go to people and sell shares. So like in the last month or so, a lot of Australian companies really, really, really need to raise some money. So they are offering big bulk uh, chunks of shares uh, to what's called institutional investors or also to retail people who can buy shares directly from the company at some price that's usually a discount to what's trading in the market. The other thing in terms of rewards is theoretically, yes, you should get dividends from the company over some time horizon. So the people who run the company have discretion over how they pay these dividends or whether they even pay these dividends. Some companies, it's really important to pay dividends. So if you think about something like a CBA or a NAB, the banks in Australia, it's really important to their shareholders that they get the dividends from the bank every year because a lot of people use that money to fund their lifestyles. That's their investment portfolio and they use the dividends to pay for their rent. On the other hand, some companies never have ever paid a dividend like Berkshire Hathaway, the famous American conglomerate that's run by Warren Buffett and the shareholders of that company don't really care because they make their money not by getting dividends every year they make their money because the value of the share goes up every year. And the two things aren't mutually exclusive. The value of the share going up is called capital gains and the value of the dividends is generally called the money that's returned to shareholders. But usually there's some balance between the two. Ideally, you get your share to go up, so your capital gains increase, and you get money back as dividends. Normally, there's um, a bit of a mixture. Just on the topic of that, what would theoretically affect the share price of those shares, uh, regardless of if the person was not giving dividends? Like you said, what's the point of holding them? Essentially, the point of holding these shares is because you think they'll be higher at some point in the future. Um, to the, There's a lot of financial theories and a lot of other theories that the price of shares should reflect the underlying health or value of the company and about the predicted future profits of the company and the theory is that then they'll pay these profits at some point in the future back to shareholders and like people argue and you learn them at uni or you learn them at work and apply them in the market and so on these theories but like people disagree about these things at the end of the day the reason you hold a share is either you think that the amount of money the company is going to pay to you is going to be more than what you paid for it over the next X years or whatever your time horizon is, or, or simply you think you'll be able to sell the thing for more money than you paid for it. That's the end of the day, what it comes down to. So that's like a lot of people that purchase a house and then they try and sell it for a higher amount in the future. So that Correct. difference of the prices that they've paid and sold it for is their profit margin. Correct. So with a house, you have the other factor that is because it's a real asset, so to speak, like you can live in it. You have other utility that can be gained from that. With shares, that doesn't exist. You literally just have the right to future profits or the, your desire to sell it for higher. But yeah, in so in Australia, for instance, a lot of people do put their money in housing, not because they need to live in it, but because they think it's going to go up in value. So you can think about it a bit like that. But the way shares are different is that it's just a fictitious asset, so to speak. 
not not fictitious because you do own the rights to own a bit of a company, but fictitious from the sense that you can't derive any other profit in the future from it. Like you don't get any immediate return on it other than just you're on the notice of shareholders and you own a bit of the company. So in the recent few weeks to month, there's been a lot of changes in the share market, which is why I decided to bring up this topic. So comparing it to normal times versus what's been happening in the past month, so could you just run through what's been going on? So essentially at the end of February, I think the first day it sort of really started to crash was February 24. The share market sold off, so there were more sellers than buyers and people were trying to unload their shares, so they were selling them for lower and lower values. And then that lasted until mid-March and the share market reduced as a total. I'm thinking about the American market in general, but pretty much every market in the world was similar. The American market reduced its valuation from its peak in February, about 35%. Um, And then it's increased back approximately or slightly over halfway of what it lost as of right now, which is the 25th of April. The reasons why it went down, the reasons why it went up, you can debate. But ultimately, for a few weeks there, people really wanted to get the money that they needed from selling the shares. And then now, in the month after the crash, when it's rallied a bit, people decided that they would rather buy these assets because they think they're going to go up rather than hold cash. That's that's the simplest way to put it, I guess. I heard that some of the effects on the share market were caused due to a disruption in the supply chains, whether it be in China or Europe or America. Would this affect the share prices? So, yes and no, I guess. Yeah, as I said before, it's really hard to know why the share market does what it does. Because mm. essentially all it's reflecting is why people want to buy or sell shares and what they think is going to happen in the future. Oh, but, so it's completely different to what's actually happening, I guess, in the real world uh, in regards to production. So this is more so the behavior of people and what people think is going to happen in the future. Yeah, so like on the whole, it's really not even about what people think is going to happen in the future. It's about what people think other people think are going to happen in the future. Oh, wow, that's complex. Yeah, I can see why yeah, no one can agree on one theory that works. Yeah, There's a famous economist called John Maynard Keynes, and he likens the share market to a, a beauty contest. And you're not necessarily picking the face that you think is the most beautiful. You want to not even think about the face that on average everyone thinks is most beautiful. You want about to think about the face that on average everyone thinks is going to be the most beautiful. <laughs> and then you can like go at higher levels and you can uh, use game theory and psychology to predict even further. But like ultimately, it's just sort of a guessing game about what you think, what you think everyone else is going to think is going to happen. Don't get me wrong, like there has to be some sort of correlation between the real economy and the share market. And that's why these market tanked 30% or 35% in three weeks because people realized that coronavirus is going to spread around the world and all these economies and businesses in the real world were going to go out of business and supply chains would be massively disrupted. But at the end of the day, that consideration only feeds into the consideration about what people think the future is going to be for these companies, not necessarily what's happening in the real economy. So with the loss of all, like these huge losses of trillions of dollars, is there any sort of measures that are being done by government to help stabilize the share prices or just any sort of intervention in that regard? 
So, yeah, that's a big reason probably as to why the share market's rebounded because governments all around the world are essentially stabilising the markets by either providing guarantees of things or by straight up buying things. So it's a little bit hard to explain and I don't really understand it fully, to be quite honest. But the price of shares also depends on how much money you can make investing in other things. So, for instance, if you could go to the bank and you could get 5% savings in a savings account a year, you wouldn't want to go and buy a share, which is a lot more risky than just leaving your money in a bank, unless you think it could significantly outperform that. So, the very first thing all these governments did in the crisis was they cut their interest rates to zero, or close enough to zero. That's irrelevant. So, America's at zero, Australia's at 0.25, pretty much every economy is either at zero, or they were already at zero or less than zero before this, like Japan and the EU, because they honestly have never really recovered from 2008 crash. So that was the first thing they did, but that didn't really work because moving the interest rate by a percent or two is not going to convince a whole bunch of people that these companies that might go bankrupt in the next year are going to be worth more next year. So the reserve banks of all these countries or the governments of all these countries had to do more. And then their next step was to directly provide bids to buy a whole bunch of safer assets. So the problem with the crash was it was so quick that everyone wanted to sell at once and not enough people were willing to buy anything. Um, the argument at least that the governments will use will be like, okay, a whole bunch of these businesses and a whole bunch of these assets are not actually worthless. There just aren't enough people to buy them right now. It's a crisis of liquidity because no one had the money on hand to actually buy these things. Everyone wants to get out at the same time. But if we can tide over the liquidity crisis and people can sell what they want to sell over a longer time frame, the prices shouldn't go down as much and people shouldn't be as panicked because there'll be someone to buy them. So that was the next step the government did. And the US government in particular essentially went into the market and were the buyer of last resort of what's called US government debt. And so if I just explain what that is, to fund spending, the US government has historically issued bonds. And a bond is just a promise that the US government makes to the person who holds the bond to pay a certain amount of money each year. It's pretty much a loan. Like the US government needs $1,000. So you give them $1,000 today. And then they promise to pay you $50 a year, so 5% interest, for 20 years, say, and then at the end of 20 years, you get 1000 bucks back too. So really, you're just getting a yield of 5% on that bond. Thing is, right, the US government bonds and bonds of all the other countries, but especially the US government bonds, are considered the safest financial asset in the world other than cash because it's inconceivable that the US government will default on their bonds. In that case, you may as well pack everything up and buy guns, I guess. But it was so crazy in March that people were selling these bonds. So normally when there's a crisis, people bid up the price of these bonds because they're literally the safest thing that exists. The US government is always going to pay its debts. But there was such demand for just straight up cash that not only was the share market losing, these bonds were losing, gold was dropping in value. Pretty much everything you could trade on a market in the world was losing value. Um, except guns. So, so everything was, uh, every company and people with a lot of money were pulling their money out of share markets and different commodities and gold and oil and stuff like that to fund their businesses. Is that right? Which in, was in causing really, share price to drop. 
really basic sense, yes. Everyone wanted US dollars. It wasn't even that businesses were doing this because it's not on a business level. It's a bit higher with all these other financial actors, which I won't explain because it just overcomplicates it. But people essentially all around the world had debt denominated in US dollars Mm -hmm. and they needed US dollars to pay off this debt. And as a result, everything else that wasn't US dollars was going down in value because people were panicked and they didn't think they'd get US dollars. So the easiest way to stem that problem is because the price of all of these other more speculative things, at the end of the day, goes back to, if I really needed to, how much money can I make off US government bonds? That's the safest asset that's not dollars that exists. That the Federal Reserve in America, which is the central bank that sets the price of money, they said, we're going to buy as many US government bonds as we need. So that then, like, it's a bit like the foundation of a house. The foundation can be safe and people could have more confidence to buy other things. So that was the first thing they did. That sort of, like, reassured the markets for a bit, but then they realized they needed to do a lot more. So what they did after that was they set up a whole bunch of agreements with foreign governments so that these foreign governments who needed US dollars could get them more easily instead of selling their bonds. So instead of the Fed just buying these bonds from these foreign governments for US dollars, the Fed said, oh, let's just, you guys keep your bonds. Uh, we'll just take some of your currency. Because uh, as an effect of this crisis, a lot of, pretty much every currency other than the US dollar dropped in value against the US dollar. I know the Australian dollar dropped like 20% in value. Even the pound dropped like 15 or 20%, which is crazy because the uh, British pound is meant to be a really safe currency. So the US government just went to the other government and said, all right, if you need US dollars, we'll do it. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do a swap directly. Forget about the markets. So they completely just swapped their currencies with other currencies. If the Australian government needs, say, pretend like the Australian banks, uh, ANZ, whatever, need US dollars, which they really do to fund a whole bunch of their positions and a whole bunch of their investments. That's way too complicated for me to understand and me to explain. They have all of the, the the key point they need US dollars. They will probably. So they have connections with the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is like the bank that controls Australian dollars in the government in Canberra. I think they're actually in Sydney, but they have to do with the government in Canberra. Anyway, so they will go to them and say, oh, we need US dollars. And the Reserve Bank then makes a deal with the Fed at some agreed upon price, or I'm not sure about these actual mechanics. Um, it's too complicated to explain, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, and they will swap US dollars and Australia will get US dollars and the Fed will get Australian dollars in return. And America did that for a whole bunch of countries um, around the world. Europe, Japan, Australia, Great Britain, um, even some more smaller ones like you know New Zealand, South Korea, etc. So that alleviated the pain of um, essentially everyone selling everything out of the US dollars. Then they realised that wasn't enough so they also started to go a bit up the pyramid. So if the treasury bonds are at the bottom of the pyramid, other bonds are on the next level above the pyramid. And by other bonds, I mean corporate bonds. So to explain what they are, they're just companies who go out and they fund their operations by selling bonds. So instead of the American government doing this, a lot of big companies, think of like Apple, big 
huge companies like that, they fund their spending on building factories and building stores and stuff by issuing bonds in the market. And so, so if I had a business and I needed to make something or build something and I didn't have the enough, enough money, I would create a corporate bond debt, like a corporate debt. Sure. Like if you need a billion dollars, you issue a billion dollars in corporate bond and you'll pay the bondholders 5% of that billion dollars for the next 10 years or something. And then after 10 years, um, you'll give them back the billion dollars. This only really applies to big listed companies who are worth a lot of money and can afford to do that. Realize if you're a small company, you can't really do that because you need to have access to the markets to do that. And also people just won't trust that you'll be able to pay it back. But for really big companies, you know, they can do that. Anyway, in the crash, the price of these bonds dropped precipitously because people didn't believe that these companies would be around and they, again, needed US dollars. So these crashed. No one wanted to buy these. So the Federal Reserve decided that they would buy these. And the mechanism through which they did that, there's a couple. They did it by straight up buying them from the companies if they wanted to issue. They did it by buying them in the markets. And they also did them by buying exchange-traded funds or ETFs, which essentially are a pool of a whole bunch of different companies' bonds. And that's, I think, a bit more efficient, the Fed thought, because they could buy a whole bunch of different companies instead of buying just a couple. Um, so then the Fed did that, and the problem with that is, right, just thinking about how you go about it, is that there's like thousands of companies. Some of them are probably going to repay, some of them probably aren't. Some of them probably should have been bankrupt before corona. Some of them, you know, are not going to go bankrupt or might even get stronger because corona. So especially when they took this step, it brought in a whole consideration of government overreach and fairness. Then <laughs> the Fed expanded it to companies who are like probably going to go bankrupt even without corona. And they bought what's called junk bonds. And junk bonds are just corporate bonds but by companies who are a bit riskier. So yeah, they're, that, they're the main actions that the, the Central Bank of America, the Fed, has taken to try and stem the crisis. And so far, it seems to have alleviated the panic. Um, I'm really happy that the government has really taken a lot of actions just to really alleviate this crisis and really put a good foot forward and try and put a lot of money out there and purchase a lot of stocks like that because the way you're explaining it it sounds like it's a very important thing to do do you think it's also cheaper for the government just from an administrative point of view to purchase those junk bonds just to keep the economy rolling i'm not sure if it's cheaper the problem is it's sort of unprecedented and it keeps these companies going probably because not only can their government purchase these bonds but these companies can make more bonds and the government will now purchase them straight away if they need more money it's definitely a positive in the sense that these companies have a whole bunch of employees and people who will be jobless if they go broke which they inevitably will uh if they you know everywhere around the world we're on lockdown so all these companies have to shut their doors and they're not making any money, but all of their expenses still exist on the books. So I think it's good from that sense about preserving jobs. But the problem is that the governments around the world and the Fed especially have done this really quickly, but the regular people around the world have not been supported so quickly or to such a great extent, which is probably inevitable considering how governments work and how central banks can move a lot quicker than governments that have to pass stuff through parliament but still it's not it 
it might, does leave something to be desired. Um, so overall, George, uh, how do you think the Australian economy will pan out using their current intervention methods, assuming the effects of COVID-19 don't get disastrously bad in Australia? So the Australian government's done a few things, a whole bunch of things, but the main things they've done on the financial side, they've started what's called quantitative easing. And that essentially is just the whole buying treasury bonds thing I discussed before. The government's in Australia, the Reserve Bank of Australia are just trying to buy all these bonds to give uh, people access to Australian dollars. And as a side effect of buying these bonds, it also keeps interest rates really low, pretty much zero. I think the target is they want to keep interest rates at a quarter of a percent for the next 10 years or something like that, through uh, synthetically through these bonds. But ultimately, you just really can think about it. they want to keep interest rates pretty free. So if you want to borrow money, it's very cheap to borrow money. And that hopefully stimulates the economy because people will be willing to take out loans. On the other side, um, the Australian government has also um, brought in two big packages to support employees, uh, JobKeeper and JobSeeker, by which they're paying everyone who's been laid off because of Corona, uh, 1500 bucks a fortnight, to continue so long as their, work, as their um, employers keep them on the books. And this is done by essentially reimbursing the employers from the tax office for paying their employees 100 bucks a month. And Job Seeker is essentially just unemployment payments, which they've bumped up to 1,100 bucks a fortnight or so. In terms of what I think will happen with the economy, I don't know. The problem with Australia is that we're fairly exposed to international movements. So I think. Our top three exports are exporting minerals, which I'm not a commodities expert, so I can't really comment, but it seems like that should be down somewhat um, because of the decreased industrial traffic in the rest of the world. But on the other hand, um, China are probably just going to keep building stuff and China's Australia's number one uh, buyer. So relatively, maybe that will be okay relative to the rest of um, industries. The bigger problem is our second and third biggest industries, which are, um, well, the export industries, which are international students and tourism, and they're going to really, really struggle. There's going to be, they're going to have to do a whole bunch of measures to support, especially the international student market. With tourism, it's a lot more unclear about what they can do when they physically can't reopen the borders and open the spread of coronavirus, essentially, back to Australia. But, yeah, I... I think relative to the rest of the world, Australia should do okay just because we have controlled the virus and the severity of a lot of the economic effects is actually being caused in some sense by the virus, not these second order spiraling effects. So I think people might be able to easily understand the first order effects of the virus, e.g. my business is shut because my government's not allowing me to open my restaurant anymore but people don't necessarily think about the second order effects as much. And that's something Australia can't really protect itself from. So I guess I'd like to leave the listeners on a positive note. So are there any benefits of what's happening? Could there be potentially be an upside to all of this? I mean, yeah, sure. I think potentially people will spend less money or will direct their investments to things that didn't necessarily benefit a whole bunch of people or a whole bunch of society at large, like potentially in some universe, um, they could reduce 
expenditure on a whole bunch of unproductive stuff. So there's a whole bunch of essentially tax evasion that happens around the world that governments will want to bring back home and make their companies pay taxes on these things to raise money. Um, even other things like now that the government has had to step in and support entire economies to stop COVID ravaging our economies, maybe the government can countenance doing that to combat something like climate change in the future. Like now that it's on the table, everything's up for discussion. And it's way, way, way too early to think about what could happen, both positive and negative. But, you know, there is a good chance that that might be up for discussion. Even other things like it might be palatable now to raise the amount of money people get from the government and support them. In my opinion, a new start prior to coronavirus was outrageously low. It was like 300 bucks a week. And if you were living in Sydney on 300 bucks a week, you essentially couldn't. They've raised it to 600 bucks or 550 bucks a week. And I don't see that changing in the Australian context. Things like that. So I think there will be good effects from the crisis in that respect. All right, George, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to listen to you. And we hope to get you on the podcast sometime soon again. Thanks for having me on. Some final thoughts I'd like to add before I finish this episode. I found it very interesting how George explained the relationship between share prices and the behavior that is a large contributor to that price. This being how investors purchase or sell their shares, not depending on what they think is going to happen, but what they think other people will think will happen. Another interesting point he touched upon is the lowering of interest rates and how this is thought to encourage people to borrow money at a cheap rate which will help stimulate the economy. However, the most important parts that I took away from this are the positives. That this is a potential possibility to change a lot of things in society as this is a big shock to our systems and our routines and could potentially lead to a new pathway to provoke new ideas such as where and what we buy as consumers, how much we can actually afford to spend, as I think we'll all start putting a bigger portion of our money away for a rainy day, and lastly, the potential for a cleaner and greener environment, as we have seen such a huge decline in pollution levels due to slowing production levels. So on that note, a last thank you for listening until the end. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and learned something new.